Hey, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you this morning. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Jake. I'm one of the pastors of Midtown Church, and so glad that you're here with us. Uh, to all the dads, happy Father's Day, and I hope it's, yeah, it's a great day and that you're being treated really well, and I hoped and expect to be treated really well uh, this afternoon. Chris is not in here, but I've already sent that message pretty clear for her and set my expectations kind of high. So anyways, uh, no, it's, good. it's good to be here with, with you guys this morning. It's a good morning to be here if you're new because we're starting a brand new series that we're calling, as you just saw, uh, Gospel in Life. And in this series, what we're doing is we're uh, picking up in the book of Ephesians starting at chapter 4, and we're going to be in it through the end of the book through chapter 6. And the reason we're doing that is because in the spring, and many of y'all might remember this, but in the spring we did a seven-week series on chapters 1 through 3 in the book of Ephesians. And in that series, what we were doing is we were really looking at who we are in Christ. It was a study on our identity. And in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, what we see Paul really making very clear as he writes to the church in Ephesus about 60 AD is when he penned this letter. And when he was talking to them, he wanted them to make sure that they completely understood is that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, you don't just, you don't become a nice person, though hopefully that does come along. But what happens right away is that you become a new person. That you are in Christ, and as a result of being in Christ, you receive a new identity. That you, are a, you go from being a sinner to a saint. You go from being dead to alive spiritually. That you, you're reconciled to God and to, to one another. That you're saved from the penalty of your sins. That you're made holy and blameless as you're put in Christ. That you're adopted to the family of God. Like he just goes on and on about this really rich theology. So that's what we were studying, that first three uh, chapters in the book of Ephesians. And then we took a break, and now we're picking back up. And because what's interesting is that what Paul does, starting in chapter four, is that uh, the, what you see is that the book of Ephesians really like hinges in chapter four and going from this deep, rich theology about who we are in Christ to how do we live out who we are in Christ and the everyday practical parts of our world. And so that's why we're calling this series The Gospel in Life, because the gospel is basically the message of what Jesus has done for you on the cross and through his resurrection that's made it possible for you to become a new person, to be in Christ. And so that's the gospel. Well, how do you play that out in your everyday life. That's what we're going to be studying for the next seven weeks. I'm really excited about that. Paul, actually in chapter 4, one of the very first things he says, and we're going to read this in a second, but let me just read the very first verse in chapter 4. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And basically, walking in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called. What that means is just to, to walk in, in harmony with who you are. And that's, again, that's what he's getting at these next three chapters. He's basically saying, in light of who you are, what does it look like to walk in harmony with that in all the areas of your life? And so that's what we're going to be studying today. The passage we're going to uh, begin with is where Paul begins saying, hey, let me talk about how that fleshes out specifically in Christian community or within the church. How do you walk in? in a manner worthy of your calling when it comes to how you interact with fellow believers. And in answering that question, he also answers a very intriguing question. He answers this question. He he answers, how do you become spiritually mature? How do you become spiritually mature? And now, for a lot of us, that probably hits kind of a relevant question because a lot of us come to church on Sundays. We want to connect with people, connect with God, but you're, you're hoping to grow spiritually, 
perhaps become more spiritually mature. And Paul in this passage actually gets to the answer to that. How do we grow? How do we become spiritually mature? So let me read the passage and then we'll begin to unpack it. It's 16 verses long. I'm going to read all the way through. So try to keep up with me. If you have your Bible, you can open up to Ephesians chapter 4. If you don't, then we've got Bibles to give away for free at the resource table. I encourage you to grab one of those when you leave today. Or you can pull it up on your phone. Or you can just read along with the slides. All kinds of ways to follow along. So starting in verse 1, chapter 4, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to, you, uh, to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led hosts of of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature, the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. All right, that's a mouthful, right? Now, what's fun, though challenging, especially for someone who often can be long-winded like I've learned that I can be. But what's fun about uh, uh, taking a long passage like this is that you get to see how uh, the argument kind of builds and holds together in this passage. In this passage, uh, this argument is, is really rich. Let me just kind of lay it out for us before we dive in. And basically, the argument is this, is that, that we have, uh, that we all, if you're in Christ, if you put your, your faith in Jesus Christ alone, forgiveness of your sins, then we are all indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But even though we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, or not just the Holy Spirit, but I would say by the triune God. We'll see that in a second. Even though we're indwelt by the triune God, we're all spiritually immature. Until we grow up in Christ together. Okay? So even though we're indwelt by the triune God, we're all spiritually mature until we grow up in Christ together. That's basically Paul's argument. Now, let me show you how I'm pulling that out of here, all right? So let's begin with this idea that even though the Trinity indwells us, and just take this, the statement that the Trinity, the triune God, actually indwells us. That's a pretty wild idea, but where does that come from? Well, let me ask you this question. What is a Christian? What is a Christian? Again, this goes back to the first three chapters of Ephesians. And just to, to cause you to, to remember this a little bit more, what we learn in, this, in the first half of the book of Ephesians is that what a Christian is is someone who is in Christ. That's the essence of what it means to be a Christian. 
that with someone who has been made alive in Christ, that Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 talks about how we, we were dead in our transgressions, but, we, but God, being rich in mercy and his love by which he loved us, made us alive in Christ and then seated us in the heavenlies. And that we've been being made alive in Christ, have been given all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms, as Ephesians chapter 1 talks about. And so we are in Christ, meaning that Christ, all, of that, all that comes uh, that is rightfully Christ is now ours as well. And that's what it means to be a Christian. That's what a Christian is. Now, oftentimes we'll think about a Christian as someone that should be nice, that should help the poor, that should trust the Bible, you know, on and on and on. And yet, those things are true, but that's not the essence of Christianity. The essence of Christianity is not being a nice person, it's being a new person. All right? And one of the results, one of the amazing results of being in Christ is that according to this passage, specifically verses 2 through 4, or 2 through 6, is that when we are placed in Christ, the Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are then placed in us. It's kind of an interesting concept, but read this along with me. He says, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, speaking of Jesus, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and what? And in all. And so there comes this idea that when we're placed in Christ, this Trinity is placed in us. And so when we become a Christian, when you became a Christian, or if you haven't yet, but one day you put your faith in Christ, then you become a new person. You're made alive. You come awake spiritually. It's really a powerful, incredible thing. Like we could spend all morning just fleshing out what this means. But what's interesting is that though this is completely true, what happens when we're indwelt by the Spirit, dwelt by the Father, and dwelt by the Son, is that we do, we, we come alive, but only as spiritual babies, not as grown, mature spiritual adults. And that's, that's kind of interesting, right? I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Like in, in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, at the end of 1 Peter chapter 1, it talks about how we're born again. And when you put your faith in Christ, you're born again, you're born new, you come alive. But in a couple verses later, in 1 Peter chapter 2, it then says, and so there, so then, as newborn babies, and that's what we're referred to as, after we've been born again, after the Spirit of God indwells us, we're now spiritual babies. it's, It's interesting, isn't it? I don't know how much you often would want to think about yourself as a newborn baby or spiritual immature person, but like that's what happens when God comes in us. Now, a couple of things about spiritual babies, just like physical babies, that are on a positive side. Spiritual babies and physical babies are both what? They're both alive, so that's a good thing. In fact, they'll never be more alive than they are at that time. And you just continue being alive until, I guess, you're dead. But hopefully, you're just alive, right? And so that's both, that's true of spiritual babies. What else is true of physical babies? They have incredible capacity, don't they? They can learn and grow perhaps better than any other time in their life. Same thing with spiritual babies. We have the ability to, to, to grow and learn unlike any other time in, in our life. That's, that's great, but... Here's the negative about being a spiritual baby is that there's, there's a lot of downside to staying a spiritual baby. Now, let me, let me draw out a couple of things, uh, and I'm, I'm going to get to it in just a second. But just to kind of hammer home this idea of how wild it is, but how true it is that we are 
spiritually immature, that even though the, the tr- Trinity indwells us, we are spiritually immature. Look at what Paul says in verses uh, 13 through 15. He, he says it like this. Um, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to what? To mature manhood, to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be what? Children. Other translations will say infants. Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to what? Grow up. Grow up every way into him who is ahead, into Christ. And so we are, we're spiritual babies. One of the great purposes, Paul is saying in this, in, in this passage, one of the great purposes of the church is to help us grow up into Christ, become mature. But the reason we need the church is because we're not mature. We're immature. Now, what's, now, before you get offended, I keep stressing this home. I'm just calling you just a bunch of spiritual babies and immature people. But I'm grouping myself in that. But even more wild is that uh, Paul groups himself into this. I mean, notice, notice verse 14. What's he say? He says that we may no longer be children. Again, other translations say infants. It really reads better as infants. That we may no longer be So Paul doesn't say so that you, church in Ephesus, so that you, Midtown Church, will no longer be infants. He says, so we may no longer be infants. Now, why would the Apostle Paul, I mean, he wrote a lot of the New Testament. Like, you think of anyone that's spiritually mature, it should be this guy. But remember, what is the mark of spiritual maturity? What's the standard? The fullness of Christ. That's how he defines maturity. And Paul would say, "Mm, I'm not there. Church of Ephesus, y'all aren't there. I think we would look at ourselves and say, "Mm, I'm not there. None of us are to the maturity of Christ. So Paul groups himself into this, saying we are spiritually immature, and Paul says, and I, just like the rest of us, need the church to help, help me grow in maturity. It's kind, of, it's kind of interesting. Now, let's again think about what does this mean to be spiritually immature? Just a couple things that Paul says in this passage. Just want to rattle this off real quick, but help us kind of identify some, perhaps some spiritual immaturity in us. Three things, three indicators that Paul alludes to in this passage is that, um, that spiritually immature babies do is that uh, they're not discerning. They lack discernment. Just like physical babies lack discernment. Like I've got a little baby, Della. She's, uh, I guess, 21 months now. But Della, uh, if I sat her down at our kitchen table and I put a crayon, a cookie, and a piece of broccoli in front of her, she would happily put all three of those things in her mouth and try to eat them. And she'd probably like the crayon even more than the broccoli. She lacks discernment. That's why I can't ever put crayons or, or anything like that on the table because she's going to try to eat it. Well, same thing about spiritual babies. We lack discernment. What's Paul say here? That we are uh, carried about by every word or every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, craftiness, uh, deceitful schemes. That we lack discernment. Another element of being a spiritual baby is if you uh, are selfish. <laughs> Physical babies, they're, they're selfish. Like, you got to teach them to share. You got to teach them that there's other people in the world other than them. Della, again, just to pick on her because she doesn't know that I'm picking on her. But uh, <laughs> she's awesome. She is. 
But we could all be sitting at the kitchen table eating the exact same thing. And every single time she doesn't want what's on her, ta- on her plate, she wants what everyone else is eating. And she does, she just sits there and says, mom, 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 dad, 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 just for us to give her what we're eating. And so we give it to her and we take it off her plate because it's the same thing. But she wants what, physical babies, they're, they're selfish. Same thing about spiritual babies. Selfish. And that's why Paul has to say at the beginning when he urges them to walk in, in humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. Why does he have to tell them that? Because that's not what comes natural to spiritually immature. And guys, if you, if you find yourself thinking about yourself a whole lot, if you're always concerned to make sure that your expectations are being met, that people are treating you fairly, that you're getting what you need, that you're being filled up and you're not thinking about others, and putting others ahead of yourself, like that's a sign of spiritual immaturity. Last, last indicator that Paul mentions here in the passage we're looking at today is not being steady. He talks about how uh, the uh, spiritual children, immature children are tossed to and fro by the waves. And basically, this is just the idea that if you find that the circumstances of life really rock your relation with God, that if you know nothing of a long obedience in the same direction with God, of persevering or being steadfast, that if your feelings are the number one thing that drives whether you spend time with God or don't spend time with God, if you're obedient to God, if you're not obedient to God, all of that are good indicators that you're spiritually immature. And Paul says, oh, that fits me. I'm there. I'm not fully spiritually mature. I think we could look at ourselves and say, yeah, same thing. I'm, I'm not there. I'm not, I'm not there. Well, a couple things this should mean for us real quick. One, that when it comes to church, one of the implications of this truth is that it should cause us to expect immaturity in one another. And therefore, don't be shocked by it. Instead, respond with humility, with gentleness, with patience, Bearing with one another in love. It's been said, and I think it's well put, that the church is not a museum for saints, but it's a hospital for sick. And I would add, according to this passage, and newborns, and for infants. And so because this is true, then we should expect that we're going to be wronged, and we're going to be rubbed wrong, and we're going to be let down. And it's not to say that that's okay, but you need to prepare for it. And I'm going to get to it in a minute, why it's still worth sticking around, even though that's basically a given, okay? But you just need to know, set your expectations there. One of the reasons why this is the case, guys, and this is actually perhaps the reason, is because we are not saved and we do not become a part of the church by being good people. We're not saved by being moral people. We're saved by grace, We're saved because of what Jesus has done for us, not what we have done for him. And therefore, we're all here because we're messed up and we needed Jesus' death. We needed Jesus. We need God to die for us. If that's what we all have in common, then we should go ahead and say, okay, okay, I should expect this and I'm going to be okay with it because I'm going to treat each other with humility because I need it as well. And I'm going to be gentle because I want people to be gentle with me. And I'm going to be patient because I want people to be patient with me. And I'm going to bear with one another in love. All right? So that's one thing. We should expect it. But the other thing that I would say as a result of this, implication of this truth, is that uh, we should not accept immaturity in ourselves. Expect it in others. Don't accept it in yourself. 
We say with this church, one of the things we will say is that oh, everyone's welcome. Come just as you are. And we completely mean that. We're so thankful that that's the message of the gospel. So come as you are. But at the same time, don't stay where you are. Don't be stagnant in your walk with God. That if you think that you're, like if you're just exactly where you are spiritually where you were a year ago, same bad habits, same lack of intimacy and walk with God, lack of, a disobe- lack of obedience, all that kind of stuff, then we say, no, no, don't do that. Don't stay where you are. And you might say, well, this is just who I am. I'm just not going to change. What, guys, that is a lie. Don't you know who lives in you? The Trinity. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You're indwelt by God. You have the power to change. He has the power to change you. You can change, and he wants to change you. Lean into that. Don't accept immaturity in yourself. But how? How do you become mature? How do you grow? Well, that's what Paul gets into kind of the meat of this passage. And basically what he says is, uh, will rub us wrong. Because it just, man, it goes completely against one of the main values of our society today. And that is, it pushes against in individualism. I mean, we are such an individualistic culture. It's the, water, it's, it's the water we swim in. It's the air we breathe. And so we don't like Paul's answer here, but Paul's answer is extremely strong. And basically he says that the way we grow into full maturity is together. That we cannot, put it on the negative side, become fully mature if we just pursue, pursue spiritual maturity as individuals. It will, not, it will not happen. We grow in maturity through Christian community, experiencing deep unity. That's Paul's point. Let me, uh, let me draw that out for us real quick. The, um, I want to show you how he says that and why he says that. Look at, look at verse 13. In verse 13 he says, and Until we all attain to the what? To the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, or attaining to, some verses, some translations say, attaining to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature, the fullness of Christ. So, according to Paul, when, when do we become mature? When we all attain to the union of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. That's interesting, because he doesn't say, when do you become mature? When, he doesn't say, when you attain to full maturity and the knowledge of the Son of God. He says, when we all attain to it. This is when we become mature. And so you can't do it on an individual pursuit. Maturity comes when we all get there. That's that's interesting. That's weird. That's different than how we think, isn't it? Now, let me show you a little bit more uh, uh, how strong he pushes this. He says that... um, when he alludes to, to or speaks to mature manhood, or some translations more literal will say to the mature man, that, that word, you notice, is in singular tense. That when we all attain to mature manhood. And so maturity is this oneness together where immaturity... When he speaks of us as children or infants, notice, the, no, notice that those words are plural. When we're immature, we're children. 
tossed to and fro. We're infants tossed to and fro. But maturity is becoming one man. And it can't happen without that. Now, why in the world is that the case? Well, think about it. What is the standard of maturity? It's Jesus, right? He's the fullness of Christ. That's what maturity looks like. Well, think about Jesus, guys. Jesus is who? He's God the Son. He's the second person in the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That he does not exist outside of community. That the Christian concept of God is that there's one God and three persons. Jesus, the second person. Well, if you're trying to be like Christ who exists as a part of a community, with, but you're trying to become like Christ independent of community, how? It doesn't add up. Christ functions in community. It's who he is. He's the, uh, the second person, the triune God. He is not independent of community. How could we become like him independent of community? It doesn't make any sense, does it? And yet we think that we can become like Christ independent of community. It, it, it's, this is a silly and, and, and dumb illustration. No one would ever do this. Don't do this. But if you came up to me and said, hey, Jake, I want to be just like you. I would say, don't do it, don't do it. Aim higher, do whatever. But they said, no, no, I, I want to be just like you. But then you set out to be just like me, but you decide you're not going to ever get married and have kids. And I would say, well, how can you be like me if you're not married and have kids? Like, that's a part of who I am, and it's a big part of what's made me who I am. You'll never be just like me without the, that part. And I, again, silly illustration, but just as backwards for us to think that we can become like Christ, uh, independent of community. Because Christ functions in community. So Paul's statements here are really strong. We grow in maturity through Christian community, specifically through great unity in Christian community. When I do premarital counseling, I, I often draw out a triangle Two sides of a triangle, on top of the triangle, I'll write Jesus' name, and I'll say, hey, one of the great ways you grow in unity in your relationship with one another is that you both focused on Jesus. And as you, grow, you, as you focus on Christ and live for Christ, then Christ will always bring you closer together. Well, what Paul's saying in this passage is that, but even stronger. He's saying if you want to become like Christ, then you're going to become closer and unified to one another because he's going to bring you together. But he's also going to use one of each other in each other's life to make you more like him and to propel you towards him. That you cannot become like him without this happening. I mean, this is a goofy picture, but I put it, I put it up here. Just like this is, if we're all the arrows and the lines and this is what we're aiming for, then this will be always what's happening if you really are maturing towards Christ. You'll be being pulled together with people. And God will actually use those people you're being pulled together with to make you more like him. That's how we grow. That's how we mature. We mature in unity with Christian community. But guys, the truth is that unity is very hard to come by. Unity is hard because the people we're trying to be unified with are all a bunch of spiritual babies. Me, you, all of us. 
And so unity, it, 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 it's hard. Because we wrong each other and we let down each other. We just do. And if you've been around this church long enough, you've experienced that already. And I wish it wasn't the case, but it is the case. So how do we stay unified? Especially in light of that our maturity, our walk with God is dependent on us being unified. If we cannot mature with, apart from our community, then we need to stay unified. But how? How is that possible? Well, let me just bullet out three things. And again, each one of these could be a sermon, but we just don't have time. So let me just bullet this out. Three things that help us stay unified. The first is that we realize that we don't have to create unity. But instead, because of the gospel, we get to just maintain it. In fact, I put it this way, that we are to maintain the unity gained through the gospel. Maintain the unity gained through the gospel. In verse 2, it says this, We should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Again, notice the word maintain. Why do we just maintain it? Because of what Christ accomplished on the cross is that he reconciled us to God and us to one another. That's the second half of Ephesians chapter 2. That, we, that the walls of hostility have come down between us, between man and God and man and man. And because of what Christ has accomplished, now we have all these incredible things in common. That's the seven ones that Paul lists out in the beginning of this passage. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one baptism, one God, all all of these things. We have unity. The gospel has brought unity. Now we just must maintain that unity. We don't create it. We maintain it. How do we maintain it? Well, we do this. We treat each other humbly. We walk in humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. Why? Because we're going to need it. Why can we do that? Because of what Christ has done for us. What will, hum- what will humble us to be able to walk in humility? When we under- what will humble us is when we understand that Jesus had to die for us. What will cause us to be patient and loving, bearing in love with one another? Because we realize that I and you guys as well and everyone else was loved so much, was valued so much that Jesus would willingly choose to die for you. And therefore, you're worth loving and bearing with. And so we treat each other with humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with another in love. And when we do that, man, that helps us stay unified, doesn't it? In light of the unity that's gained through the gospel. It's, again, go back to the goofy picture, but if you see this, you just see that bearing with one another in love is what ties us together. No, go to, there we go. This, I tell you, this is artwork. This is incredible. This is like, man, I will, I will probably for a high price sell this to you, but... That's, it's like this is binding us. It's tying us together when we bear together with one another in love in light of the gospel, the unity gained by the gospel. The second aspect is this. What will help us grow in this unity is that when you use your gifts granted to you by the gospel, when you use your gifts granted to you by the gospel, here's what I mean by that. The, the, the weird part of this passage, perhaps you felt it whenever I was reading it, is that this uh, chapter, I mean, verses 7 through like 10, uh, it gets kind of like, Paul, what are you talking about? Like, Jesus ascended, he descended, he set captives free, like, he gave gifts to men. Like, what, what are you talking about? Basically, what Paul is saying through there is that one of the things that Christ accomplished when he descended from heaven, when he died and then later ascended back to heaven, 
is that one of the great things that he accomplished is not just the salvation of our souls, so that's kind of a big deal, but also he gave gifts to his followers, to the church, that would enable them to serve God and serve one another. That's one of the great things about Jesus. Verse 7 says it this way. It says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then verse 11 says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. Okay, and so later on in the New Testament, you'll get lots of other lists of spiritual gifts that were secured for us in Christ and that Jesus is the source of. And that all of these gifts that Jesus has given were given to the church so that we can serve him and serve one another. And we learn that these gifts, when we practice them, when you use your gifts to serve with me or to serve me, when I use my gifts to serve with you or to serve you, what happens? What's one of the things that happens? Do you not grow in unity with one another? Do you not grow in your appreciation for one another? Do you not grow, do you not mature as a result of being the recipient of someone else using their gift or being the one that is using their gift to help someone else? Absolutely. It's how the body of Christ is built up, Paul says. That we grow up in unity when we're using the gifts that were gained by the gospel to serve one another. This past week, the the Central MC threw a big party at Shite Park. And we invited a bunch of our neighbors to come out to that so we could get a chance to get to know them, connect more with our neighbors in that area because we say we long to see the day when every man, woman, child in Austin hears the gospel from a person who loves them and a big step towards that is that we actually get to know people and we become friends with them. So we threw a big party. It was a lot of fun. At that party, one person kind of new to our MC, uh, Nolan, many of you all know Nolan, she's at, the, she's at the party. Well, she meets a guy that lives on Phil and Summer Street who happens to have visited Nolan's hometown in Oregon many times. And so they click, they connect over the, this, con, this connection right here. Well, as a result, this, this man says that he's interested in visiting Midtown. And he wants to come. And man, we, we hope that he does. But that would not have happened if Nolan hadn't been joining RMC to help us connect with this guy. And Nolan would have never connected with this guy if Phil and Summer hadn't invited him because he lived on Phil and Summer Street. And that there wouldn't have been the context for that connection if it wasn't for our MC working together to throw this party. And yet all of that works together as we serve with each other in ministry. We feel a deeper co- connection with Nolan, and Nolan feels deeper with Phil and Summer, and I feel, we all feel deeper together. We also have seen God work in a really awesome way that grows our faith and that God is with us, working with us to help us reach people in central Austin. And so our faith is matured. Our bond with one another grows deeper, more unity, and through that we become more like Christ. Right now, Another illustration, we have eight people that are watching our children in the, in the three classrooms back there. These eight people are not here on Sunday morning getting to be, do what they would, if they had to choose, they would probably choose to be in here. Though they love our kids, they're missing out. But you guys are able to hear God's word taught and praise God without having a bunch of crazy kids running around because they're serving us. And when you acknowledge that, don't you feel an appreciation for them? See, they're using their gifts to serve the church, and and as a result, we appreciate that, and we're able to mature. That's awesome, right? 
That's what happens when we use our gifts secured by Christ for us through the gospel to serve one another. We grow in unity that leads to deeper maturity. As what Paul's saying in this passage works completely against another big cultural norm that has stepped into the church that's just as, as unhealthy as individualism, and that is consumerism. The, the consumer mindset is really rampant in the church today, and it's sad because it completely oppo- opposed by the Christian mindset. The consumer mindset sees church as something that you go to to receive from, and you always want to make sure that you're getting more that you're, than you're g- giving. And if you ever feel like you're giving more than what you're getting, then you think this is not a good fit. <laughs> and many times you'll even be willing, you, you even go so far as to say, well, I'm not willing to give anything because I'm not here to give, I'm just here to get. So I'm not going to serve, I'm not going to plug in, that kind of stuff. And so that, that it sees church as a business transaction. And it's completely unbiblical. What Paul says here is the church is a family. Or even what? We're a body. We're one unit. Christ is our head. We're the body. If, if none of us are, do, if someone's not doing their part, then we're unhealthy. That our maturity depends on one another. And so a, a family, a Christian mindset, a family mindset doesn't say, here, I'm out, I'm out to get. It says, I'm out to give. I mean, no mom, no mom, no good mom, I should say would ever look at their family and say, man, how can I, how can I get as much possible from these people without giving, while giving as little as possible? I mean, it just doesn't work. That doesn't work, thankfully, for you moms that you don't do that. And if you're tempted, don't do that, all right? But guys, we, we're a family. The church, the body of Christ, we're a family. We've been adopted into the family of God. We're brothers and sisters. We should approach it as a family. We're the body of Christ. Christ is the head. We, we are built up in Christ when each one of us is doing our part, as Paul says in verse 16. We, we, come, we should come saying, I, I, it's not about what I get. I mean, hopefully you get. Hopefully you feel blessed. But that's not what it's contingent on. You're here to give. You're here to serve. You're to use your money, your time, your capacities, your abilities, and your gifts to serve the body of Christ. And in doing so, we're built up in unity, which leads to maturity. The final thing that I'll say here, final point, is this, that... Get to it. We grow in unity when we speak the truth in love, grounded in the gospel. When we speak the truth in love, grounded in the gospel. And guys, perhaps this is the most practical and most essential element of all of, of everything that I've said that will lead to unity. Because speaking the truth in love is how we know how to grow and where we find the context where we're willing to grow. That, that we need each other to speak truth into each other's lives so that we can know really where we need to grow. That, that we don't really know what areas we need to grow in unless an outside source is telling us. Because we can't really know ourselves fully unless we're getting the input from an outside source. This is why every day we wake up and we look at a mirror. Because we don't know what we look like unless we have an outside source telling us what we look like. Well, guys, it's the same thing when it comes to our relationships and the Bible. We need something outside of us to tell us, to hold up to ourselves and say, how am I doing? What am I like? We need people in our lives to point stuff out to us. We need to open up and spend time in the Word to point stuff out 
to us. We need an outside source that will speak truth into our life. But if that source speaks truth harshly, we'll run. It has to come in love or else we will not hear it. But here's the, here's the hard and frustrating thing. is that our maturity depends on people speaking the truth in love to one another. And yet none of us can do that very well. Can we? Why? Because, because we're, we're, we're sinners, to put it bluntly. We're selfish. We don't want to speak truth in someone's life because we're afraid that it's going to hurt their feelings and, you're, and then that's going to make you feel guilty. Or we're afraid that they're going to get mad at us. I won't speak truth in someone's life because I'm afraid if I do, they're going to get mad at me and I don't want them mad at me. I don't want to rock the boat in our relationship, so I'll keep things as is. I, I, I don't want to fill in the blank because of how it's going to come back on me. Or sometimes I'm quick to speak truth into someone's life, but not with love. And in those cases, oftentimes what's motivating me is because I want to be right. I want to win. I want to feel superior. I want you to see how little you are and how good I am. And so I'll come with truth, but not for them, but for me. Or I'll hold back on love, not for them, but for me. Or I'll only give love and know truth, but not for them, but for me. And yet, that's the thing we need the most. We need to speak truth and love to one another, but we can't do it. It's so hard to do. How do we overcome that? Well, guys, we lean into the greatest truth that's both love and truth, and that is the gospel message. We have to cling to the gospel because here's the gospel message. In a minute, we're going to take communion, and we're going to, re- we're going to remember this. In fact, service, why don't you just get up and, and pass out communion because this, I want us to take it together as we, as we hear this point. As they're passing this out, if you, if you can try to follow along with me, that'd be great. That way, uh, y'all can actually go to Father's Day dinner in decent time. Listen to this. This is the gospel message. This is the truth and love of the gospel. The gospel is the hardest, it is the hardest truth that you will ever hear. The truth of the gospel says, you were so sinful you were so messed up that the only thing that could save your soul is if the God of the universe would die for you. There has been never a more insulting or harsher thing said about you than what's said about you when you look at Jesus dying on the cross. That's the truth of the gospel but also contained in this gospel is the greatest declaration of love of all time. Because on the cross, you also see Jesus hanging there 
willingly having his body broken for you, willingly having his blood spilled for you, willingly because you matter to him, because you're worth his life and death. In his mind, you are that loved. You are that valuable. You're that worthwhile. On the cross, is the great, you see the greatest decoration of love, and yet the greatest, hardest truth at the same time. And what's the result of this? Well, the result is that it humbles you. It humbles you to the point that you would never dare simply speak truth into someone's life in an abrasive way because you're feeling more superior than them. If you've been humbled by the truth of the gospel, you will come gentle, with patience, and with love. And yet, you will come to them. You will speak truth to them in light of the gospel because you know that they need this. And you love them enough to tell them. And you are confident enough to tell them because your identity is not based on how they think about you. Even if they are rubbed wrong. Even if you came in love and they took it the wrong way. Your identity is not based on what they think of you. It's based on what the God of the universe thinks of you. And if he loves you enough to die for you, then you can go in confidence of that love to be able to love someone enough to tell them the truth. As we need the gospel to love each other enough to speak the truth and love to each other. And we will grow up into maturity when we together are speaking the truth and love to one another. Guys, even though the Spirit of God, even the, the triune God indwells us, we are spiritually immature unless we grow up together in Christ. And so, stick around. Bear with one another in love. Serve one another. And serve with one another. And speak the truth in love and lie to the gospel. I want you to just give you a second to just meditate on what's been said. And perhaps God's going to bring to mind something you ought to do with this. Perhaps you need to get connected beyond a Sunday morning. Join an MC or a huddle. Perhaps there's someone you need to reconcile with. Perhaps you need to begin to serve. Or perhaps there's something else that God's saying to you. I'm going to give you a chance to think about it, and then I want you to find the confidence and the ability to do it in the fact that Christ died for you. And when you're ready, you take the bread and eat it, and you take the cup and drink it. Remember, Christ's body and blood spilled for you. Let me pray, and then I'll give you a time for reflection. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you because of the gospel, we can have unity. God, I pray that you would uh, speak to our hearts strongly because, God, the, the, the things that your word is saying to us here just does not uh, uh, um, jive with what our culture tells us, that we can become spiritually mature on an individual basis, that it's good to act as consumers, that we can never really love people by telling the truth or tell people the truth with love. Like, 
all these things, God, we need you to do your work in our hearts. And God, we need you to draw us to be close, to be one, that we may grow up together in Christ. So God, grow us. Grow us by growing us together. For your glory, God, and our good. In Jesus' name we pray.